Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Piano Rhapsody podcast. My name is Andy. I'll be your host. This is a podcast where you follow my journey as an amateur piano player, starting out at an intermediate level and hopefully, with luck, one day ending up able to play some of the advanced concert level piano repertoire. Now, I really hope that this podcast evolves organically, but I'm a fan of goals, so I'm going to set one in the first episode. I will consider this podcast a success if, on the final episode, I'm able to play Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, hence the name of the podcast. Now, I realize this is a lofty goal, and I expect it will take years, so... Sit down, grab some popcorn, and get comfortable, because we're in for a long ride. So you're probably asking yourself, what exactly am I getting myself into here? The general format is this. Roughly each month, I've come up with a theme. The theme could be a certain time era, like the Baroque period. Or it might be a certain composer, like Chopin. Or it might be a certain type of composition like waltzes, regardless of the subject. To kick off each new group, you'll get an episode where I dive into each piece for the month, talking about the history, the composer, and a bit about the musical composition, so that you can fully appreciate every piece before you listen to it. Then from there, I'll release one of my recordings every week, and we'll repeat the cycle again next month. Now, if you already enjoy listening to piano, or if you're taking piano lessons yourself, this podcast is for you. But even if you know absolutely nothing about classical music or piano playing, this podcast is also for you. The only requirement is that you like music and you keep an open mind. And I know, I know, I could already hear some of you thinking, but Andy, classical music is just so boring. You know, I've tried to get into it before, but I, I just can't do it. It's not for me. Well, if you really want to give it a fair shake, I am here to help you. We're going to start from the basics. No prior knowledge required. I think one of the biggest mistakes people make when they try to get into classical music is that they try to jump straight into the deep end with these really complex, virtuosic pieces, and they can't really appreciate what they're listening to. It would be like me handing a copy of Anna Karenina, an original Russian, to a native English speaker and saying, here, this is a great book, you're going to love it. The goal of this podcast is to be a stepping stone into the world of classical music, specifically piano music. We're going to focus on more palatable pieces, ranging from the Baroque period all the way to modern day. And we'll work our way up from there and see how far along we get. You know, the whole reason I wanted to make this podcast is because as an avid podcast listener myself, I searched for a podcast like this and was surprised it doesn't exist. No, I'm not trying to say there haven't been other piano podcasts out there, because there have. Some with piano players with much more skill than I have. But a lot of them haven't been updated in years. And none of them really have the same angle I'm going for here. I'm really trying to bust down that wall that keeps people from getting into this genre of music and lay out a nice welcome mat for you. And given the state of the world right now, a lot of us find ourselves with some extra time on our hands. So what better time to broaden your horizons a little bit? Or at the very least, 
Maybe you'll sound really intelligent in a cocktail party one day. As someone waxes philosophically about Chopin or Rachmaninoff, you'll have something to add to this conversation. And if that happens to one person out there, I think I will have found my purpose in life. But in all seriousness, I'm really excited about starting this journey. And I think there's a lot to learn and a lot to listen to. But before we get started, a little bit about myself first. It will not take long for anyone to realize that I am not a professional piano player. I actually haven't had formal training since I was in high school. I did not study music in college. I've never played professionally. I'm just a regular guy with my Yamaha digital piano and my Zoom recorder. Playing piano is a hobby for me. I try to find time to practice every day, but sometimes life just gets in the way. I have a full-time job that's in a field completely unrelated to music. And I have a wife and a very needy toddler. Having said that, to keep up with this rate of releasing one piece every week, you're going to find some minor errors in some of them. I just don't have the time to devote to perfecting every one. But it shouldn't be anything major that detracts from the piece. Actually, you probably won't even notice most of the time. And if you do notice, you can just keep that to yourself. And remember this adage, you get what you pay for. And keep in mind that this podcast is free of charge. All right, I think we're ready to get started. Let's dive into the first piece. I decided to go with something extremely well-known at first to get our feet wet. So let's take a look at Beethoven's Bagatelle number no. 25 in A minor, Work Without Opus number no. 59. So there's already a lot to digest in the title alone, so let's take it piece by piece. Beethoven was alive during the classical period of music, and during this time, it was not common for composers to name their pieces something descriptive, or even interesting to that matter. Uh, most of the titles were simply what type of piece it was and the number after it. So in this case, we have Bagatelle number 25. This would have been the 25th bagatelle that Beethoven wrote. Bagatelle translates roughly to trifle. So this is a piano work that is light and entertaining without too much complexity, which is a good start for us. The next part of the title indicates what key the piece is in. The key can span from letters A to G and has a designation of major or minor. In the future, we'll go into this in more detail, but for now, I just want to point out that major keys tend to be used for pieces that are uplifting or joyous, and minor keys tend to be reserved for the more melancholic, solemn pieces. This particular piece is written in A minor. The next part of the title is the opus number. Uh, the opus number is very simply just a chronological count of the composer's major works. This particular work was not given an opus number by Beethoven. Beethoven typically reserved opus numbers for his most important and major works, and this was just kind of a minor personal piece that he wrote that he never intended to publish, nor was it published until 40 years after his death. In fact, if Beethoven wasn't the ultra-popular, influential composer that he was, this piece would have almost certainly been lost to history and would have never found a life after his death. Having said all of that, this piece was never given a proper opus number by Beethoven. 
but back in about the 1950s, when musical scholars were compiling all of the works from Beethoven's manuscripts that were never released, they decided to give them an arbitrary numbering system. And these are known as Beethoven's Works Without Opus, or W-O-O. And this is the Work Without Opus number 59. So once again, let's go over the entire title, which is Beethoven's Bagatelle number 25 in A minor, Work Without Opus number 59. Now, some of you are probably already upset with me because I said I was going to pick a popular piece, and who in the world has heard of Bagatelle number 25 in A minor? Well, I admit, not many people refer to this piece by that name, but what if I told you that the much more common name for this piece is Beethoven's Fur Elise? Not only one of the most popular pieces Beethoven has ever written, but arguably one of the most recognizable pieces in the entire realm of classical music. Not only is the music itself immensely popular, but this piece is widely discussed because of the underlying mystery behind the title. For Elise translates to, simply, for Elise. But who is Elise? Most scholars would agree it comes down to three women. But before we talk about these three women, Let's take a step back and talk a bit about Beethoven's relationship with women. In short, it was not good. Beethoven let his musical genius go to his head. He was pompous, arrogant, and had a sense of entitlement. Aggravating this sparkling personality, Beethoven was losing his hearing, and he was awfully bitter about it, as you can imagine an extremely successful musician might be. To top it all off, Beethoven was a schlub. His personal hygiene, or lack thereof, left much to be desired. His friends would actually have to take his clothes while he was sleeping to get them washed. So if you add up all these factors, it isn't very surprising to see that Beethoven didn't have much luck with the ladies. I mean, if you can call it luck, it seems kind of self-inflicted. I mean, I wouldn't say he deserved to die alone, but he did, in 1827. For Elise seems to be Beethoven's ultimate love letter. Granted, it was unsuccessful at the time, I wonder if it would give Beethoven any peace of mind knowing it became one of the biggest hits of his career. It's kind of like the ultimate posthumous Taylor Swift song. Take that, Elise. So who is this mysterious woman? Suspect number one, Elizabeth Rokel. She was a musician in Beethoven's inner circle at the time. She actually performed as a lead in Beethoven's only opera, some speculate that she may have went by Elise, and that Beethoven wrote this piece to her as a commemoration for her leaving to go work in a theater in another city. Or perhaps Beethoven was in love with her, which would have been very unfortunate, because she ended up marrying his rival. The second, and in my opinion, the most likely suspect, is Therese Malfatti. She was a former student of Beethoven's and the daughter of an aristocratic family. Beethoven was in love with her and proposed marriage, which she immediately declined for a lot of those reasons I mentioned before. The theory is that Beethoven wrote this piece for her as a sort of peace offering after a disastrous proposal. Based on letters between Beethoven and one of his good friends, Beethoven arranged a meeting at the Malfatti estate to play a piece for Therese that he had written specifically for her. This also ended in disaster. While details are scarce in these letters, what we do know 
is that Beethoven got wasted and could not play, hereby cementing his romantic failure with Therese Malfatti. Somehow, she managed to live a happy life without Beethoven, married a nobleman, and ended up passing away in 1851. And here's the part where the evidence really points at Therese Malfatti being the mysterious Elise. In 1867, a scholar named Ludwig Knoll went through Therese's manuscripts after she passed away and found the original for Fur Elise. It contained the note, Fur Elise, a memento from L.V. Beethoven. Now, I've already mentioned how Beethoven didn't have the best personal grooming habits, so you can probably suspect that a grimy guy like him wouldn't have the best handwriting. So some propose that Mr. Knoll just happened to misread Beethoven's messy handwriting, and that Beethoven actually wrote for Therese. But we will never know, because Knoll conveniently lost the original manuscript, and the only surviving manuscript of Fur Elise is Knoll's original copy. But what if you read it correctly? What if it actually said Fur Elise? What was it doing in Teresa's possession all these years? Well, that's where suspect number three comes in. Julianne Catherine Elizabeth Berensfeld, a student of Teresa's, who, as you probably guess, went by Elise. The theory for this suspect suggests that Beethoven was trying to win Therese back over after that disastrous marriage proposal and offered this piece to one of her students to play. It would explain why this piece was in Therese's possession for all of these years, but the motive behind it's pretty weak. But before we close this case, I want to throw in a dark horse conspiracy theory into the mix. It really bothers me that Ludwig Knoll lost the original manuscript. So what if it never existed at all? What if Knoll published one of his own compositions under Beethoven's name after he died, using Therese Malfatti's death as a likely story for how this piece could have been discovered and lost for years? Are we living in a world where Fur Elise was actually composed by some nobody? Is Beethoven just constantly rolling over in his grave, knowing that one of his most famous compositions was written by someone else? I mean, personally, I'm going to go with the Beethoven had bad handwriting theory, but it's food for thought. Regardless of who wrote it or who it was written for, this piece has proven to be one of the rare ones that is timeless, making an impact in 1867 during the time of its publication and continuing to do so today. This piece can be found all over pop culture, most notably in the Peanuts Christmas special, where poor Schroeder tries to give Lucy some culture, but she just demands that he play Jingle Bells. Aside from TV shows, it's also been used in many commercials, including those for McDonald's, Adidas, and Doritos. And do you want to make a guess as to what the most commonly used ringtone was in the 90s? That's right, for Elise. But of all the ways for Elise finds itself into our modern culture, I think this one's my favorite. Did you know that the garbage trucks in Taiwan play for Elise? Ever since the 1970s, when the garbage trucks roll around the city, they blast this tune out of their speakers. So I apologize in advance to all of the Taiwanese truck drivers out there, because I'm sure you're sick to death of hearing this piece. So now that we've unraveled the history, 
Let's discuss the musical form. Furalise is the most famous example of the rondo theme, which means it has three parts, A, B, and C, in the order A, B, A, C, A. Its main theme, or part A, is the part that everyone's heard of, with the right hand's repeated oscillation between E and D sharp, and the left hand in broken chords. Part B announces its arrival with a chord change to a prominent F major chord. Up until this point, all we've heard are minor chords. So this is Beethoven's way of saying, hey, we're making a transition here, and it catches your ear. The shorter Part B concludes with a rapid flurry of runs, which constitutes the most technically difficult portion of the piece. The flurry soon cools off to resolve itself into a transition to get back to the familiar Part A. After a repeat of the main theme, the piece moves on to part C, with a steady pulsing left hand that drives to the climax. After the piece's arpeggiated climactic rise, it slides down from the top via a chromatic scale, which basically just means it hits every single note on the way down. And at the bottom of the mountain, we find ourselves, for one final time, at the main theme, completing the rondo format of A, B, A, C, A. And there you have it. That is the end of our first piece. Please check out the podcast feed where you will find my full recording of Fur Elise and see if you can pick out the transitions and assemble the rondo form by yourself. A genuine thank you for giving this podcast a shot. If you'd like to stay in touch, the easiest way to do so is to hit that subscribe button, and I will gladly infiltrate your eardrums on a weekly basis. You can also find me on SoundCloud if you search for Piano Rhapsody. I'll be uploading all of the tracks from this podcast in full onto there, along with others. I've already uploaded about a dozen, I guess we'll call them B-side tracks that didn't quite make the podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at, at Piano Rhapsody, and feel free to email me at pianorhapsodypodcast at gmail.com. Next time you hear from me will be in one week where we will break into the first thematic group of pieces. Talk to you then.